Good afternoon. You know, there are moments in this life, I mean this literally, when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. The Hamas terrorist invasion of Israel territory, Israeli territory, and the murder of Israeli soldiers today, and uh, the brutal murder of citizens is an act of savagery. No ands, ifs, or buts. This was an unprovoked attack by terrorist people willing to kill innocent people to achieve uh, an objective. A group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This was an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered. You're dealing with cold-blooded killers. And you can make all kinds of excuses why they are, but they are. That must and will be crushed has to be, it has to be dealt with very powerfully. It's as simple as that. These atrocities have been sickening. We're with Israel. Let's make no mistake. Thank you. What was your reaction? Hello and welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi, and tonight we're joined by Evan. How you guys doing tonight? Okay. Been better? <laughs> yeah. The world's been better. Yeah, definitely. So just for the audience, we're recording this on uh, the 17th of October. So if you've been paying attention at all, Israel bombed a uh, hospital in Gaza today, or I should probably say another hospital in Gaza today, because I don't think this was the first. So we're kind of living in the aftermath of that right now. And depending on who you're paying attention to, you either believe that Israel bombed that hospital or Hamas bombed their own hospital. Yeah, with the uh, makeshift rockets that they have, right? Not the USDAMs that are supplied by the US to Israel for the continual airstrikes that have been going on all week. I don't know, just some crazy stuff. But I think that ties into what we're, that whole conversation, that whole framing and how you kind of understand the situation ties into what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going to have kind of a loose conversation, I think, about, I mean, really propaganda and how that is kind of formulated through the state. Levi, I know you got some write-up. Evan, we're going to talk about some of your experiences. And I guess at the risk of you guys being tokenized, I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to just interject where I feel appropriate. No, I only say that because I saw some wild thread the other day that said people who share around Jewish voices for peace are just tokenizing this entire, you know, anti-war movement, <laughs> anti-group full, full of thousands of, you know, Jewish people calling for the end of this nightmare. There weren't only Jewish people at the rally I went to. You should all share it. Just wild gaslighting, but. I remember seeing somebody say that calling the DSA anti-Semitic uh, is one of the most absurd things that anybody who's ever been to a DSA meeting can ever say since like half the room are Jews. Absolutely. Adams is going around saying, that DSA members in New York were carrying around swastikas, images of swastikas, implying that rally for Palestine was a pro-Nazi rally just feeding into the propaganda machine, which is, we have critiques of DSA and everything, but Nazis, they are not. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. so what, what's the saying? Like, how can you tell that uh, Mayor Adams is lying? Is he speaking? <laughs> yeah, he's speaking. He's, 
It's crazy. And people just eat it up. You know, it's discouraging. Also, there's places of hope. I mean, all the rallies that we've seen. I mean, I everything I've seen has been resoundingly, especially like when you take into the global context, has been very pro-Palestine. People are aware. I guess we're going to continue to try to do our part, maybe to raise awareness to specific aspects of it and maybe just, you know, have a little bit of release for us as well. A little bit of catharsis as if we need to center our emotions here right now. But uh, I think it's important because I know we all deeply, deeply care about what's going on. Levi, I'll uh, turn it over to you. I know you got to write up to kind of kick us off and frame the conversation. I came up with this write up as just sort of a means of centering this on the concept of propaganda as as a Jewish person growing up in a Jewish household, there was a lot of propaganda that I had to go through. And it sounds like, Evan, you went through a similar experience, if not even more culturally Jewish than my family really was. Yeah. I mean, my family itself wasn't very religious. And so I don't know that they necessarily were propagandized, but we'll discuss this later on is that part of what my framing of my conversation or my thoughts here is that I went to a Jewish day school from sixth grade till I graduated high school and included in that was a three and a half month semester in Israel where I lived in over 20 years ago. So it's been quite a while, but I think that relates to the propaganda. As I'll sort of describe here, a lot of this is very intentional on the part of the state of Israel. So as a short introduction, I think it's useful to consider the Israeli cultural diplomacy of Hasbara. Although many listeners may not know the term Hasbara, which is a modern Hebrew word without an easy direct translation, they are familiar with this execution, most likely, especially as it's been going on in the last couple of weeks. At the 2012 Jubilee Conference of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy, Chaz W. Freeman Jr. spoke clearly and at length on the concept. He wrote, quote, Hasbara links information warfare to the strategic efforts of the state to bolster the unity of the home front, ensure the support of allies, disrupt efforts to organize hostile coalitions, determine the way issues are defined by the media, the intelligentsia, and social networks, establish the parameters of politically correct discourse, delegitimize both critics and their arguments, and shape the common understanding and interpretation of the results of international negotiations. Freeman continued, quote, Unlike traditional techniques of agitprop, disinformation, and propaganda in conventional media, Hasbara does not seek to merely burnish or tarnish national images of concern to it or to supply information favorable to its theses. It also seeks actively to inculcate canons of political correctness in domestic and foreign media and audiences that will promote self-censorship by them. It strives thereby to decrease the willingness of audiences to consider information linked to politically unacceptable viewpoints, individuals, and groups, and to inhibit the circulation of adverse information in social networks. The World Union of Jewish Students published a document in 2012 sponsored by the Education Department of the Jewish Agency for Israel. The 131-page booklet entitled Hasbara Handbook Defending Israel on Campus is a how-to guide for executing Hasbara. The booklet includes a section entitled Fighting Antisemitism which is broken down into two types, clear and possible. Clear antisemitism are when one relies on well-known derogatory statements and stereotypes for their understanding of Jews. Those who deny the Holocaust, 
are people who express sympathy for the heinous 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville or the 2016 mass shooting at the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. Those who express such overt anti-Semitic sentiments, according to the booklet, deserve to be called out, and I tend to agree. Possible anti-Semitism are sentiments which might be motivated by anti-Semitism or, in another context, would be anti-Semitism. Taking aside that I'm a Semite, if I said, Israel is a terrorist state, my friends here know I'm criticizing Israel as a settler colonial ethnostate which denies basic humanity to the Palestinian people. But if a white supremacist said the exact same thing, I would assume they meant it as an anti-Semitic screed stemming from some dark reaches of their hate-addled mind based on race science and or disturbed fundamentalist interpretations of Christianity. The statement is the same, but the context is important. At least, that would be a reasonable definition of possible anti-Semitism. But for Hasbara, it's about weaponizing Jewish identity to construct a narrative to protect the state of Israel itself. And this is from the booklet, quote, where an act might have been motivated by anti-Semitism, but there is unclear, it is often worth expressing some form of disapproval, but refraining from leveling public charges of anti-Semitism. Depending on the local situation, it is often worth expressing personal upset, saying that one was, quote, hurt as a Jew by the controversial act. Wrongly accusing people of anti-Semitism can cheapen the charge, as well as being quite unfair. Expressing public disapproval helps to let people know that Jews care about what is said in public, and serves to maintain a red line of clear anti-Semitism that respectable public figures know not to cross. The more traditional propaganda wing of Hasbara inundates the population, especially the Jewish population in diaspora, with exceptional histories of the state of Israel and manipulates the very real horrors of Jewish prosecution to fit that narrative. The nefarious innovation of Hasbara is that it enlists the average Jew to define anti-Semitism as any attack on the state of Israel. By falling behind the appeal, quote, this hurt me as a Jew, the Jewish volunteer propagandist builds an emotional brick wall around their lack of material history to back up their accusation. Once erected, it doesn't matter what information the debate contained. It has now veered into terrain of personal trauma and victimization. The irony is, this approach only works in a society which already values, or at least claims to value, the free flow of information and abhors anti-Semitism. The Hasbara approach intentionally manipulates these realities to redefine any sentiment against the propaganda of the state of Israel as an act of anti-Semitism. In turn, I'd argue, by changing the definition of anti-Semitism to the attack of a state rather than keeping focus on the actual anti-Semitism so prevalent among white nationalists, it softens that society's claims to values of openness. But back to Friedman. Quote, Asbara assumes the free flow of information within an open marketplace of opinion. In that context, it seeks to promote selective listening. The purpose is to constrict the demand for information, not like more traditional techniques of state censorship which limit its flow. Although Hasbara includes efforts to impede access to information through a wide variety of techniques adopted to new information technologies, it focuses on limiting the receptivity of audiences to information. Speaking for myself, I first learned about Hasbara by that name 
in my wife's conversion class. The rabbi that day called it the Disney World History of Israel. He playfully made fun of the exceptionalist themes which prop it up, but it soon became apparent that he did so as a means to make it easier to stomach the more sinister elements of Hasbara. It's a truism that the best propaganda plays with its own select weak points. In that same class, a student mentioned the phrase Palestinian apartheid in questioning the state of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. The rabbi choked up and, in my memory, he said that exact phrase, I am hurt as a Jew. He explained that he himself protested the horrors of South African apartheid as a young man, something I don't doubt. He claimed calling the Israeli state treatment of Palestinians as akin to apartheid disrespectful to the South African movement for freedom, and he started to cry. Sitting in that class, I knew Nelson Mandela in 1990 stated, quote, We identify with the PLO because just like ourselves, they are fighting for the right of self-determination. I also know Desmond Tutu in 2010 recalled, quote, class was silent, as the teacher recollected himself and continued. I'm not saying he did so intentionally. That's not usually how ideological propaganda works, but this incident provided a masterclass on executing Hasbara. Freeman concluded, Israel is a small country, surrounded by enemies and dependent on continuing subsidies and military support from the United States. However one evaluates the wisdom of Israel's policies or the lack therein, it is hardly surprising in this context that Israel has led the way in understanding the importance of information warfare and developing new concepts of how to construct it. Where Israel has led, others can be expected to follow. Hasbara is not exclusively Israeli in execution, but I think it's an important concept to frame experiences with popular Jewish Israeli history in America, Hebrew school and birthright for diaspora Jews, in addition to how the American media and shills on social media have leapt to defend the Israeli state by throwing around accusations of anti-Semitism. Going back to that concluding statement from Freeman, Israel is a small country surrounded by enemies and dependent on continuing subsidies and military support from the U.S. I was raised in a small redneck town in Pennsylvania, um, was not exposed to a whole hell of a lot of diversity growing up or anything like that. My life experience, my initial Thoughts on a lot of the world and history were formulated by the education system here. And that exact phrase that this is a small country surrounded by enemies with no other context is kind of one of the first things I remember myself learning about Israel. You know, you learn about the Holocaust, you learn about the horrors, right? And then you understand this as, as an understandable response to that. If you don't know the history here, it makes sense. And then it becomes very easy just to associate this place as like a safe haven for. Jewish people in a vacuum seems like it makes a lot of sense. I could very easily see how people never get beyond that. And it is so integrated, I would say, even into just your standard American education system. 
I mean, it is so pervasive, especially that formulation. And like, then you get these questions like, why do they hate us? And people that haven't taken it beyond just have this idea that, hey, they're surrounded by enemies. What are they going to do? You obviously have that other connection that they want to make where if you criticize this state in any way, then you're an anti-Semite. It's interesting. I feel like I've seen people in the last week who aren't Jewish levy that same charge to people to say, oh, you're criticizing Israel. You're being anti-Semitic. So it's not just like the line for Israelis or the Jewish diaspora. It's weaponized by more than just that. That's what I think makes it dangerous and becomes such a problematic way of thinking. And then if you actually are levying that to someone who is Jewish, then they can either go and say you're like a self-hating Jew, which I've gotten now twice in the last week, or you're not really Jewish, which I guess is kind of the same thing, like you're lying. And then the third is like, oh, well, you're just full of shit. So it's like one of those three options. Yeah. And then what are you faced with? Like giving that person like a 75 year, if not more long history lesson condensed into like an argument, like you're never going to get out of that conversation. Yeah. Usually I just tell them to shut the fuck up and then I, (laughs) I mean, at some level, I don't know how else you kind of keep your own sanity. Right. Is like, I've had this conversation with people that I trust to have the conversation and push the limits in other conversations as well. And it's not easy to do. And you, you do have to have that understanding just because, again, and Levi, this is something we've talked about in the Mark series, again, to bring in like a theoretical framework. They have made this the common sense for a lot of people. And it's not as pervasive as they would hope, I think, given the outpouring of support we've seen across the world and across the U.S. You know, this past week with various rallies and protests in support of Palestine and the Palestinian people. But it's still a lot especially in like when you see this being weaponized on like social media. And I don't want to dismiss in this conversation that we're having tonight, the importance of social media, because I know people say, Oh, get offline and everything like that. But like Palestinians are also asking that you, you know, raise your voice, share what's going on on the ground on social media. So it is a terrain that we have to fight on. Have you noticed pro Palestinian support within what I would consider like the Western Imperial core America, Western Europe, that are not from people who might identify as leftists. Mm. In the state of New York, only one New York state senator came out today and made any kind of pro-Palestinian support. Again, I don't follow every state, I can't know, but given what we've seen from the national, you know, from Congress and senators, I mean, I guess it's also the bubble I put myself in, right? The people I see online are primarily leftists, but I don't necessarily think that all of the people who are Palestinian or Muslims are all necessarily leftists. I think they just care about humans. Maybe it's inherently left to consider human life as actually sacred. Yeah. And again, I may be suffering from the same thing that you are in terms of what I've actually exposed myself to online, but... I've not seen anything come out and be like, look at all these right-wing neo-Nazis supporting Palestine. And I think, Levi, you and I have talked about this just in the context of the far right globally embracing Israel. It's because you have to understand this along the lines of reactionary nationalism in terms of support for Israel. I mean, I think that's why it's so easy in a lot of ways for the state of Ukraine to say, hey, we support Israel unequivocally, right? Even though in what could be in a vacuum analogous situations of a big country beating up on a smaller country, or in the case of Palestine, getting fucking genocided by a bigger, more powerful country. I think on a broad basis, if these people are really 
know what they're talking about ideologically. I think that they understand and can live with Israel because it has those reactionary nationalist characteristics to it. In terms of building a militarily, economically, and technologically strong ethno-state, Israel is one of these really awkward templates that I think the far right actually has. On top of the fact that the far right also contains these weird Christian nationalist strains that believe in a Zion movement that I I can't even begin to understand. But these things sort of play around in the alt-right in ways that are on the face of it, very contradictory until you dig down and really look at the basis of the ideology of the state. And then you sort of understand, yeah, they, they really like the idea of Israel. They don't like Jews. They would love all the Jews to go there and exist apart from them, but they are okay with that concept of the state. You took some of the words out of my mouth. I remember years ago thinking like, why does George W. Bush seem to speak out about liking Israel? Apart from his recent comments, which are not surprising given what we know about him. But he considers himself a born-again Christian, and I think many of these born-again Christians believe in some ways of what some uh, very religious Jews believe, is that they're going to reincarnate you know, Jesus or God and return to the land of Israel. They protect it as their own sacred land, not as the Jewish sacred land. It just so happens that you know, a right-wing ethno-state is in control, and so that's who they're going to support, because what else are they going to do? Some of these freaks take it so far as they think that you know, the Jews entirely reclaiming the Holy Land was, is going to usher in basically the return of Jesus Christ. Right. Exactly. It's fucking insane. I mean, and I think like on another level, this is something that we've also mentioned and it's getting called out on social media everywhere. But I think it actually is a really good example of the point we're trying to make here about like an ethno-nationalist right-wing project. Look at all these fucking freaks with the, that support Modi and his project of basically trying to implement apartheid and segregation of Muslims in India and build a Hindu ethno-nationalist state predicated upon religious chauvinism, right? And like people are just being like, oh, we stand in solidarity with you because they're seeing that template, as Levi said here. You can point all these things out, but I think there's just like this immediate exception that comes up because of the history that has been weaponized by the state of Israel here in a lot of ways. You know, I think a lot of liberals could look at what Modi's doing in India and be like, oh, this is like on its face bad. But there's that added level of hesitation to apply that same critique because of the history that they've weaponized. I think in a lot of ways, they're taking the same blueprint or the same book and sort of applying it to their concept. So Jewish Currents has actually done a podcast and they titled it, What Indian Ethno-Nationalists Learn from Israel Advocates. And I mean, the title alone really gets at the point that they're creating organizations in the United States similar to the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, and it's called the AIPAC, and it's an attempt to gather Hindu diaspora in order to levy American politicians on the importance of supporting India as a pro-Hindu position, that not supporting India is in fact an affront to the Indian ethnicity. This thing that Modi is actually trying to create actively a single Indian ethnicity. Muslims don't fit into that Indian ethnicity in the same way that Muslims really don't fit into the Israeli state definition of Israeli identity. It sounds eerily similar. I mean, we can see through history countries using other people's templates. I mean, 
we all know what the uh, Germans did in World War II was very reminiscent of the United States' plan. So, And then even going further than that, what was going on in terms of German definition of the Livenstrom was really imperialism brought back to Europe. So you can trace it even further back to just the creation of the concept of the nation itself and how imperialism was so key to the development of modern capitalism. And it's not a coincidence that at the same time, these notions of ethnicity and being are coming into being is that the same time that this concept of anti-Semitism and the Semitic itself are being crafted. I mean, it's a direct result of the revolutions of 1848 when people start looking inward and thinking about why these revolutions failed or why the state failed to coalesce in a way that they understood it to coalesce, that they look for scapegoats. And these Jewish people that are existing within their own borders are a really easy way to understand that they are not part of the state, whereas these people are part of the state. I think that gets back to our point that we really have time to give you a 150-year-old history in order to define why we don't agree with the ethno makeup of Israel as a representative of the Jewish people. Well, you guys have uh, multiple episodes detailing <laughs> the history of the creation of Israel, which a lot of these things I learned you know, growing up, but from a much different viewpoint. It was interesting listening to your episodes because there was a lot that they left out. <laughs> yeah, or just that they said differently. My memory of most of that primarily is that the thing that they drove home was that Theodore Herzl's vision for a Jewish state culminated with the end of the Holocaust and World War II. And basically, Israel was given this land, this state, because, you know, it was like reparations. The Germans wanted the Palestinians to pay, right, in this analysis, rather than, or, I mean, I guess the Palestinians <laughs> probably don't come up very much, do they? No, we didn't learn too much about the Palestinians. They were just yeah. this uh, group of people that just, you know, they just had to get out of the way before, this is again 20 years ago, so I don't have an exact memory, but I, it was not this. It goes to something that we've also brought up in our episodes before, and I, I promise I'm not trying to turn this into a plug to go back and listen to our episodes, but I do <laughs> think we, you should, you know, made a couple salient points, particularly one of the things that I found in the research on our part, especially as it pertained to basically those critical years of the formation of the state of Israel, the UN partition and the Nakba, was that in the post-World War II years, there were so many Jews in Europe that had this affinity for places like Britain, France, the US especially, because they had family, extended family, friends that had moved there. And this is why I think we need to really center this as a critique of obviously the state of Israel, given what it's trying to do right now, but also just historically the Western powers themselves, because I made a little joke about it before. It makes sense why Jews would want to escape the horrors in Europe that they just went through, right? But I mean, on a broad basis, they didn't want to go to Palestine at that point. They wanted to go to places where they had ostensibly community connections already built up and they could try to rebuild their lives. Uh, prospects. Yeah. And, people you know, the heroes of World War II turn these people away and say, no, go displace these brown people in the Levant. It's no different than the way you look at a lot of Western European countries now where, you know, they don't want Muslims and people from Africa and other areas to emigrate or to migrate to their countries. I don't think they wanted the Jews in their countries either. I would suspect they didn't want them there. Well, 
Didn't they completely denazify those governments in, what, 10 days? Yeah, none of them stayed behind. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of those uh, Nazis uh, coincidentally went to America. Well, that's why they couldn't let the Jews go to America. Anyway. Yeah, but it is an important piece of history. And again, it's another point that we have to take 10 minutes to actually work through, right? And get into historical context to actually just even refute that. So, I mean, I mean, the term, I guess I would imagine that you, you probably both have gone through at some level is just a lot of cognitive dissonance as you kind of are forced to reconcile, especially as you get more leftist, as you get older and you learn more, but like, it must create a lot of cognitive dissonance where like this idea clashes with a new history or new way of understanding that you're presented with, right? Yeah, so I'll just say that I went through Hebrew school in the 90s, early 2000s, and that was a, a kind of unique period where there was a lot of conversations about the PLO and how to recognize the PLO as the legitimate leaders of Palestine. So I was right in the thick of that sort of major contradiction. I remember the teachers telling me that the Palestinians can't be trusted but we can trust the PLO because they're interested in whipping the Palestinians into shape and making them into a modern people. We were supposed to be hopeful for the Accords. I believe that was the Oslo the Accords. Oslo Accords, yeah. And this was supposed to be like a big turning of the page that this two-state solution was actually going to happen and there was lots of hope. And this was before the sort of disintegration of that post 9-11 that every domino fell after that. I remember there being a lot of conversations about what it means to create the two states, what it means to come to grips with and recognize these former enemies as possible partners in the region. And the way that I remember it being described was in a very apt, though not in the way they thought of it, comparison to uh, native peoples in the United States, that look, these native peoples now, they have their casinos, they have their respect of the American government. In the same way that the Palestinians really are going to gain a seat at the table and understand themselves as partners with Israel. And now I sort of understand just how big of a joke both of those things really are in terms of propaganda. And it was just coming to grips with that over time that there was really no serious or reasonable attempts made at recognizing these human beings as human beings. It's interesting you mentioned the PLO and the two-state solution and all of that. I remember, so around 94 is when I started going to Jewish day school. But when I was in college, I took a couple Jewish history classes just because I thought like, oh, this will be easy. I've already learned a lot of these things in high school. <laughs> and I remember distinctly, I, I wish I could find this paper. I wrote a paper on Yasser Arafat. And I don't remember very well whether it was just a research paper, I feel like it related to just the PLO and the PNC, the uh, Palestinian National Council, I believe. But I just remember going through this and saying how he was this great leader, how he had done so much. And I remember turning this paper and you know getting a good grade. I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I mean, the, this is really what it means to build a two-state solution. And I don't feel like from around the early 2000s until for probably 10 or 15 years, I don't feel like I gave much thought to Israel or the Palestinians. It was almost just like out of my mind, you know, I, and until I started leaning towards leftist politics and reading more about the things about pal the Palestinians that I just didn't know or just like wasn't taught. The word Nakba was never mentioned in my high school, probably ever a single time. There's no way. The history, it's like you could say, Nick, were you saying in your town, you got like sort of like the very basic American 
version of this history. I got like the, maybe not the most Jewish religious version of it, but like the complete opposite end where it was, we're going to indoctrinate you with Israel is great. Two-state solution is fine, but we don't actually want to do it. It was always the two-state solution is the best solution. It's just those Palestinians don't know what's good for them. So it was always their fault that the two-state solution was never coming together. Yeah, and they would blame it a lot on, I mean, in the early, late 90s, early 2000s was a period of lots of terrorist attacks within, put that in quotes, terrorist attacks. I mean, bombings, let's call it that, within Israel. And that's when they started building fences and security really became this hallmark of Israel. It was not the case. Then, then there was a trip when I was there that you could have gone on uh, a multi-day hike where it went through Egypt into the Gaza. And that's where like the ending point was. And then the bus came. You could think about 20 years ago where you could just go to Gaza. Now can't get in or out. Yeah. Wasn't there actually like Israeli settlements in Gaza at one point in time? And eventually I think they just had to be abandoned. I think so. I mean, understandably, just not sustainable. That was relatively late as well, mm-hmm. like the early 2000s. Before the blockade. It was all part of the same process. Right. And I know even during those like Oslo peace accords, the idea that there would be two whole contiguous areas for Palestinian control was always kind of a joke. Because I even remember looking at maps. Gonna say the and it was like thing. this like... Swiss cheese throughout the West Bank and Gaza that the Palestinians would like be in control of. Yeah. That's not a settler colonial project. I mean, what is? With highways connecting them, requiring different license plates throughout the West Bank with various checkpoints that are the only means of actually connecting all of these contiguous portions, right? I mean, I had the same sentiment at some point, and it was just like, you look at a map and even if you're a political dumb fuck, like I think you would think, well, how do you make two states out of that? You know? It's actually the question. I talked to a friend of mine recently that I've met in college. I've know, known him for many years. He's very liberal-ish. And he and I were discussing this on last Friday. And one of the things he brought up in sort of his arguments to me was, oh, well, in 1947, when they were Considering the two-state solution, you know, they had maps again, like you're talking about, of what it might look like. And the Palestinians basically said, no, you know, well, we're not going to do this. Or maybe there was a portion within their voting group that didn't want to do it. He says, well, they could have had it and they, they didn't want to do it. And I tried to explain to him, it's their fucking land. Like, they're just saying, you have to leave. Palestinians, to your point, I mean, about voting and everything, that was done by the UN. That was a UN right. partition. And Palestinians did not have a seat at that table. It was the British mandate of Palestine. Palestinians were never understood to be a nation state at that point in time. Within that framework, they couldn't have really had a seat at the table as fucked up as that sounds, you know? Second thing I told him was, well, your land that you lived there, okay, well, we can live together. But I don't think that Israel or what was going to become Israel wanted this partition of a two-state. They were not aiming or vying for that as a possible system. But if you, you can, like, there's maps going around now of what Israel looked like then. Like, the West Bank was very much larger. It was a different, the territories have shrunk. And the other thing, the other big propaganda piece from when I was in school was, you know, Yom Kippur War, the War of 1948, 67, all of those were treated as these wars of liberation, where that's not what those wars were about. Who do you think was arming Israel? Absolutely. And who, who was arming the people there, too? I, I don't know what to make of any of those things. 
I don't exactly know what your experience was, Evan. It sounds like it was a lot more structured than my experience as a sort of from a family that did not practice, was vaguely cultural and sent us to Hebrew school. We didn't go to a Jewish school, uh, but I went to the same school, me, my brother, and actually my father grew up in the same Hebrew school in here in Pittsburgh. A lot of the time it was just sort of like this extra two hours, two to three days a week that we had to go to after school where you got to learn Hebrew and you had to learn certain Israel historical facts. And it was more or less an excuse to just like be a smart ass and to try to challenge teachers on practice and belief and just make their lives as miserable as possible. But in Judaism, there's actually a lot of tolerance for this kind of behavior because the religion tries to claim that studying and challenging is a core tenant of the religion. But that same lenience was really never allowed towards questioning the purpose and history of Israel which was always this like weird thing that when we were talking about Israel, the teacher would actually yell at us about what topics in history or what we can and can't give on lenience. There was some difference in my experience because of the Oslo Accords, and there was some attempt at talking about Palestinians as a people. But I have a specific story in mind from my father, but he was actually in Hebrew school during the Yom Kippur War. And I guess for whatever reason, they would send the uh, IDF tank drivers uh, that were suffering, they couldn't be trusted in the land of Israel, they sent them to teach Hebrew school in Pittsburgh. And my dad, being a smartass, made questions about the purpose of the Yom Kippur War. I don't know what he said. He doesn't remember what he said, but said something to upset one of these tank drivers, sent him into a probably PTSD rage. He was choked to an inch of his life against the chalkboard. While that was an extreme reaction, uh, it was also a reality. These Soldiers were coming back and teaching Hebrew to impressionable young Jewish kids in the early 70s. And that's all part of the propaganda that's being created, that you can joke and you can challenge all you want on the concept of religion. You know, that's tolerated. You don't joke about Israel. They're not going to exist unless you believe in them and you support them here in America. Because the people in America, they don't understand. They don't know what it's like to be a persecuted people. And while my father stayed being a smartass, he's also been extremely pro-Israel his whole life. It doesn't surprise me that they would send people who might have fought in the war, you know, to be teachers, to provide them with some kind of job. But that's, that's very wild to me. I don't feel like in my primary school, there was much challenging of the Jewish. Everyone was either, I was very, I was also very not religious either. I was very secular, my family, but many people in my school were Orthodox, you know, they're Shomer Shabbos, they don't drive on Shabbat. So I had a mix of friends. But I want to read the overview of this program that I mentioned before, which was in the early 2000s. I spent, again, spent three and a half months living in Israel, primarily in Jerusalem. And then for six weeks at the end of that three and a half months, I lived on a kibbutz and we were forced to work on the kibbutz in a job, unpaid volunteers. I have a couple of funny stories related to that, but it just, I think it's interesting to read what this says. I mean, it's, students will participate in a fascinating variety of seminars designed to span centuries of Jewish and Israeli history with an emphasis on the struggles and triumphs of today's state of Israel. As we study experiences and tour the country, we will focus on personalities from ancient and modern times who have impacted upon the history and development of Israel the exploration of heroes and ordinary people who have played a role in shaping our nation will emphasize the importance of individuals in affecting the evolution of history. Within this context, we will 
offer these different programs. And then there's each week was kind of like a different piece of this program. The first part was Southern Israel looking at Ben-Gurion and like the footsteps of Abraham. There was one about getting to know Jerusalem. There was one where we went to kibbutzes. Another one I like to say, talk about is we did uh, Moshe Dayan, which is uh, a five-day course participating in special paramilitary experience with the idea. Just in case you move there and you have to serve? I knew someone from high school who, after he graduated college, um, volunteered for the IDF and served for three years. I'm not friends with him. <laughs> I never, never really was. Well, I guess I was a little bit in high school. But that five days, imagine you go to the desert, you're living in a barrack, a literal barrack. They specifically chose the most attractive soldiers to be the trainers for this program. And I think that was intentional. I never thought it at the time. But we know about like these thirst trap videos and things for American soldiers and IDF. It was a very conscious effort to show you why we need to have the Israeli military be mandatory service. And why you want to be here. Yeah. We ran, we shot automatic weapons. And how old were you at the time? I was 17. Pretty easy to imagine why that would be a fun time for a 17-year-old. I had a couple friends from high school who I'm not that in touch with much anymore, but have, have been over the past 20 years, and they loved it. I mean, I could see, if I think back to where I was at 17, because I was a little shithead, you know, I was concerned with the wrong things, I could see how that would have been appealing if you have no context and the Palestinian people are completely isolated and separated from that entire experience. That's what makes it, I think, so effective is that it is isol- like an isolated place and experience and this kind of, it's, it's a very designed program for people under the age of probably 25. I think Birthright might go there for a day. I don't know because I didn't do Birthright. Birthright's kind of like this American trip where they'll essentially pay for you to go to Israel we haven't really mentioned, but it's another means to get people in America to gain support for Israel while basically going there and just getting drunk for two weeks, seeing Masada. I didn't do birthright. I don't know that I had any concept of even the Palestinians so much as like, I hated Hebrew school. Why would I want to go to a state that I think of as just like one giant Hebrew school? <laughs> anyway... I had friends that went, it's easy to talk about birthright as like a singular concept or a singular thing, but it's run by a bunch of different organizations. Yeah. So your experience is going to vary based on who you talk to in terms of what they did at birthright. I talked to one person that was, that did the birthright and I I think you're right. I think it was like two weeks. Yeah. And they spent the whole time in various classrooms at Hebrew university, just like getting lectures from people not even really exploring the city very much. And they said it was just miserable that it might've well, might as well have been, you know, anywhere in the United States would have been just as exciting. But I had another friend who did a lot more research before they signed up for theirs and they did a nature based birthright uh, because they were actually very pro Palestinian and were one of those obnoxious kids in your high school that takes on political groups that you sort of like look back and think, man, I wish I was more interested in these kind of things back when I had that kind of free time. And, and they took them around the cities, they took them out in the country, they took them to a kibbutz. And he said he really had this like great experience with the land of Israel. And he said, you know, they, they really do sell the beauty of the topography. But the moment 
he would ask about Palestinians or question anything related to the war. They would literally take him aside and give him a stern talking to about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate to ask questions about. So he just learned very quickly. Oh, and also it helps that these people are also carrying guns with them as they're telling you to act appropriately. Those threats are feel very real when they get incredibly emotionally motivated and tell you those aren't the questions you ask while you're here. We deal with those things because we have to in order to keep this place safe. And so as a 16, 17-year-old or 18-year-old, whatever it might be, you stay quiet because the guy with the gun is yelling at you to stay quiet. Yeah, what are you going to do? This brings up two things. The first is you mentioned the Palestinians. So for the most part, the trip was pretty much didn't explore or visit anything that was related to Palestinians. But on about the, let's see, second week of this trip was a day entitled Palestinian Peace Process. Mm. And we had a Palestinian speaker and we were basically in a room where they, they served us lunch and they introduced us to this Palestinian speaker. And they basically wanted to explain how these two groups of people, the, the Jews in Israel, the Palestinians could get along. And I really wish I had a better memory of what this conversation entailed. Because I'm sure at the time, too, I was probably thinking, this is stupid. I'd rather just be, you know, walking around Jerusalem, finding a way to, to drink what we're not supposed to drink and <laughs> things like that, which is basically 80% of the trip was going sneaking out at night. They fit one day of the whole trip related to this. And it strikes me as intentional. Like, let's give them a little piece of it and talk about how it's complicated. This is complicated. I'm sure that was a word that was used very often. The other thing about the guns is I remember going everywhere. Military IDF in Israel carry guns. Everywhere you go, the mall, walking down the street, on a bus, there are soldiers carrying guns. And, and this is actually something that I noted before. The one thing that I, I find interesting, I don't know if, what do you think about this, Levi, as, um, as something. I remember coming back from Israel and in college telling people that I felt safer in Israel than I do in America. Mm. And I remember very distinctly thinking about this, and I, I don't know why that is or why I felt that way. And maybe it's because, you know, as you're, you're a Jewish person and you're in a place where everyone is Jewish, there are people carrying guns, it's safe. But I could be walking, walking down the city in New York City or wherever, and there could be unknown violence. Like it's, Israel's a fairly safe place minus the, it's like, there isn't a lot of crime in Israel, a fairly safe place. And I, I don't really know what to make about that. I think that relates to the fact that Israel is an incredibly centralized statist experiment in terms of a state structure. I like to think it goes back to their sort of socialist roots in that they had a lot of idealized notions of the economy at their creation where they wanted full employment for Jewish people and they wanted something that would be a safe haven for a people built on the backs of subjugation of an other. But for those people that were part of the majority, this was meant to be an oasis. And in a lot of ways, I, they followed through on that, at least through the 80s, before their big neoliberal turn. And I would say even to this point, they still have an abnormally high education and low unemployment and low crime rate. Good health care. But it's all on the backs of an apartheid system where those things are allowed and those things are encouraged because of the utter and complete degradation of another people. Yeah. Because I remember hearing that as well from people that came back from Israel. My thought, too, and I 
didn't add it to the end was it's just you're living in an ethno state where you are the majority religion. It does it makes sense you would feel safe. Exactly. That's by design. One of the other big appeals of this trip is that it's all inclusive. Mm-hmm. Oh, the birthright. Birthright. Right. It's like something that even as a smart ass kid who claimed vehemently that he didn't want to go, there was a part of me that, you know, wanted to leave the country and go on a two week vacation somewhere that I had never been before and was something very different. And I think that's also part of the appeal of it that is given to young Jewish people is like, you know, even if you don't really consider yourself very Jewish, you know, you have a free two week vacation where you can do whatever you want. This is a place that has lower age for drinking and things can happen there. There's dance clubs. Yeah. They really sell it as fun. Yeah. I mean, just listening to this, it strikes me as that like they're trying to sell it as this belongs to you. I mean, it's in the name, right? Yes. Birth, right. You have a right to this place. You have the right to come do it. And there's a people here that are going to take care of it all, fund it, show you around. As long as you don't ask too many uncomfortable questions, right? Or potentially get caught by the wrong IDF guard with weed. But <laughs> but it's like selling you on a timeshare where like you go for the first time for free. Mm-hmm. And then you could like come yeah. back and buy a piece. And I'm not trying to defend these people right now when you're faced with, you know, when you're given all the evidence of what's actually going on. But I mean, I think there has to be some level of willful ignorance because you don't want to see that. You don't want to lose that. And you feel that, you know, this is part of your identity. You can choose not to break with that, even when confronted with fucking horrors, right? Like you can go to the IDF's Twitter to defend and, you know, reject any notions that. Israel just bombed this fucking hospital in Gaza, right? Because you want to believe that stuff. Because you don't want to lose this place, this thing. Evan, when you were talking about the program, and you talked about like this history spanning centuries, right? It seems really key to demonstrate this continuity, right? Like there was this rupture, but it's still all explainable. And I think part of me, I guess, always kind of understood this as like, yeah, we know about like the state formation of Israel. But I think even I was kind of meant to understand it as like a continuous history here of the Jewish people in this place. Well, maybe I'm off base in that, but it seems important to this overall perception. This is yours, not the Palestinians. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because later in the trip before we went to uh, the kibbutz, which I want to share some interesting things about that, but there was a two-day period which is called Struggle for Independence. And one of them was going to the Mount Herzl Cemetery to hear. I remember there was a lecture about Theodore Herzl and talking about the independence and the struggle and all this. But one thing I will say too, and I think is easy under birthright, and probably your friend Levi who went and did this kind of more hiking thing. Israel is a, is a very beautiful place. There are lots of cities there that are really remarkable, and the history and the things we saw and going to the the Dead Sea and seeing all these different things, it's it can easily captivate you. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And it's easy to do that when your promise of this ethno state that's free of crime, has jobs, healthcare, all these things, it's enticing for people. Four people from my high school now live in Israel. It could be more now. But I remember after they went to college, they moved straight away to Israel. This region is called the cradle of civilization for a reason. Like it's one of the most topographically diverse, important regions for the, you know, the development of humanity as a species. 
mean, you have Egypt, you have Jerusalem, you have Persia. I'm talking about the ancient kingdom, modern day Iran, Iraq, Western world religions grew from this area. It's incredibly important for world history and it's been built up as such. Yeah, I see these stories sometimes about a settlement in near Gaza where it's a family from Brooklyn basically like took the land and now they live in this house where the Palestinian family is just, you know, looking inside. It's a common thing you you can see if you look online at these kinds of things. But I wonder how many people who are living in Israel are what I would say not but are not born there. People who have decided to move there from my high school, move there from Detroit. It doesn't matter. Just moved. My curiosity is, is how potent that promise of Israel might be. I, I have cousins who live in Israel. None of them were born there. They all moved there. When I was living there, I ended up visiting one for a weekend. They had nine children. It was, they were Shomer Shabbos. It, it's interesting because I feel like if your family is Israel, you're trying to bring more of your family to Israel. You want them to come and stay there with you. They want to be part of this colonial project. Yeah. And I think that's the key there, right? And just to go back to, again, centering like the state projects that are involved here, we have to really understand the impulse from the beginning, as stated by figures like Ben-Gurion. Immigration in, migration in, has always been an imperative to establish this Jewish majority with a very small, vanishingly small Arab minority. These things we're talking about, this attraction, these, I mean, performances, it sounds to me, that kind of get put on, mixed with like the genuine allure of this place that is, as you said, Levi, relevant to all or much of humanity historically at some level, all obfuscates the reality that this is built upon a fucking horror show. You're not allowed to talk about the Nakba if you live in Israel. Unless you're calling for it again in Gaza right now. Did you see the uh, person in parliament who was, I think, was going to be expelled and then they reversed it, saying he can stay, where he basically called for another Nakba? He's calling for genocide. Yeah, basically. I, I don't know if people out there know what a kibbutz is. I feel like it's the closest thing you can get to like being kind of like a socialist commune type of situation. I don't know how many kibbutzim there are within Israel. I'm guessing hundreds. And they, you know, can be a couple hundred to much larger. I think the one that I lived on for six weeks had about 600 people who lived there. I, I worked in a meat factory for six weeks where I woke up at five in the morning. At six o'clock in the morning after I had breakfast, I went to the meat factory and I packaged frozen briskets and other shit into boxes and I tagged them and I put them on shelves for six hours. Took a meat break where they literally gave you like hot dogs and cold cuts. Right off the floor, was it? <laughs> <laughs> you went to this little room, you go have lunch, and then you essentially would leave. And I'd have from one o'clock until dinner time to just kind of have free time. And then I would do it all again. And it was a very odd experience. Some people worked in the kitchen. Some people picked dates. Some people worked in the meat factory and the actual making of hot dogs, which I saw and didn't eat hot dogs for about three years. <laughs> Don't want to see how the sausage is made, literally. It's disgusting. <laughs> you know, people go to kibbutzes as part of maybe birthright for a day to see them. But I think it's a very interesting structure that they've built within Israel. I, I don't it felt like these like little, little mini settlements where we're going to have this piece of agriculture that we're going to do, or this, you know, some will make blankets, some will make sandals, you know, the Naot sandals, you know, like the kind of Israeli version of Birkenstocks. 
There's a kibbutz that makes them. Mm. And the way they framed it was like giving back. The, the paper that I'm reading from literally said, we would make a real contribution to the community. You will also be adopted by a family. So we had to actually not live with the family, but we'd have to go to Shabbat dinner with them. It was very awkward. Although some <laughs> of the people who live there were actually kind of cool. People are people, right? You know, some are yeah, I mean, and some are going to be cool and funny and accepting, that's, right? That's the thing I want to also maybe frame this entire trip was at the time, for the most part, I feel like other than maybe the military aspect, you know, looking back on, I probably think of it as fond memory of most of it, except for here and there. But in the in retrospect, it was just propaganda. And there's no way to separate that from, you know, from that trip now for me. I had another friend that did the kibbutz. I believe he stayed there for a whole summer, maybe a year. But one of the things that he did say was that there's just this large kibbutz to IDF pipeline where an abnormally large number of people that go through the kibbutz system or work on a kibbutz then volunteer to be members of the IDF. This structure itself does feel very socialist, does feel very left, does feel like something that can be replicated for good in other parts of the world. But it's very clearly designed and managed by the state to inundate followers with it being a, a state of Israel production, not something for the general humanity. You have this idyllic life, and now you need to go protect that? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I didn't even mention this before, but this, that was my third trip to Israel. I've been there three times, and that was the final time. And one of the other trips I went, we stayed at a kibbutz for three days. And that's also a big industry. I mean, tourism is also probably is one of Israel's biggest industries, aside from now tech, which is a whole other conversation. And they very much made it, now that I think about it, this is this idyllic society. If you don't want to live in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem in the bustle of the city, you can live in like the country, which a lot of them were very beautiful. Where I was, was hot as shit. It was like 110 degrees every day. <laughs> And very humid. It was in a valley, so it was miserable. But it was pretty, you know. And you spent most of your work day inside. They they were selling you on that idea of now mm. you can go defend your homeland. But I was curious how many kibbutzim there are in Israel. The first article that came up was from NPR. So for one, there's about 270 within Israel, between 100 and 1,000 residents. And it's interesting. This article in NPR from God, it was from just this week. <laughs> I didn't even realize it was from this week. So they're kind of trying to throw a little NPR propaganda in there. But it's, it, it refers to it being the idea of a socialist or Marxist. The first time I think I've ever heard the word Marxist written on NPR.org in my life, unless it was derogatory. And it also says you don't really earn a living in terms of money. Like Money isn't really that much of a thing on a kibbutz because you're earning your money. And then through that, you don't own your home when you're there. It is close to what like a little mini communist society would like. And it also says that they've been around since the early 20th century, since 1910. So these existed before Israel existed. And they probably were meant to be exclusionary to, to prevent Palestinians from being part of them. So they went there. I think it was also probably very young Jews who moved there to do this. I thought it was interesting the way NPR frames it. I know the second or third Ali, I don't remember which one it is, I'm sorry, was very specific on the idea of labor and farming. And it was meant to attract Jews that still didn't have the right to even own land or work land in their European homes. 
there really are some aspects of this that are doable and have intentions that could be considered positive. It's just they're always horribly tilted because of the exclusion and the settler colonialism and the imperialism that ultimately underpin almost every single action from beginning to end of what ended up being the state of Israel. And I know in the state of Israel, there's a lot of pride in the social welfare and the maintenance of a social safety net in the state, and even in, in celebration of their socialist past in these Marxist uh, kibbutz system that is pretty much eradicated whenever American media talks about it outside of this NPR article. And I would guess that those kind of aspects are actually what are sold to European Jews. Like British Jews probably hear more about the socialistic background of Israel more so than the American Jews who are more likely to be interested in the burgeoning capitalism in their private land they can get by settling in the West Bank. This article specifically mentions that it was meant for people who rejected capitalism. So they've got something for everybody. If you're listening and you're like me and unfortunately stuck seeing all of the things that are the last few days, but especially today on social media and all the, the lies and the things. And I think that there has to be also this separation between modern revisionist Zionism, which is kind of the strain of Zionism we see adopted by Netanyahu and the right-wing government in Israel and most Jews and also most people where you can reject Zionism but it doesn't mean that you're rejecting Judaism. And I think that I see this friends of mine who are Jewish falling into this trap saying that, of course, the undertones of all these Palestinian protests are that they don't like Jews. It's like, no, do I have to check everyone, like interview them when they come into the protest? Do you like Jews? Do you like Jews? To pin that on every person who is against the settler colonial state of Israel, and the actions that they're taking right now of genocide, I think, has to be repeated over and over. I can't believe it has to be said, but I think that that's the narrative that I see from some people I know who are Zionists. And go read the 2017 Hamas uh, platform because there are a lot of people who are misinformed on Hamas. Many of these Middle Eastern countries which have platforms or statements of their ruling parties of anti-Israeli sentiment they specifically state that their problem is with the state of Israel. Yep. It's never stated as with the Jewish people. I guess that's a blanket statement. I'm sure there are fringe organizations in all of these regions that have something like that in their statements. In the same way that there's a neo-fascist party in the United States that I'm sure has something to that effect. But the general ruling parties of these places do not have outright anti-Semitism as part of their platform. That's more or less the creation actually of Western imperialism, this concept of anti-Semitism. It's not a creation of Muslim doctrine or political formation. This is the 2017 Hamas. Uh, you can take this out if you want to. I think people should hear it. I mean, I had to go through this conversation the other day as well. And I know there is some pretty bad history in terms of if you look at like the first iteration of this document, but I mean, look at where yeah, it's at I, now. I, look, I, I'm not here saying that these people are perfect, but I'll just say that. So it says that the Zionist project is a racist, aggressive, colonial, and expansionist project based on seizing the properties of others. It is hostile to the Palestinian people and their aspiration for freedom, liberation, return, and self-determination. The Israeli entity is the plaything of the Zionist project and its base of aggression. And I, I don't think you could say it more clearly that they're not specifically, they don't, I don't see the word Jew. I don't see the word 
you know, kill all the Jews. I don't see any of the things. Their qualm is with wanting self-determination. The, the state, state entity. entity. And then two paragraphs under that, it says Hamas affirms that its conflict is with the Zionist project, not with the Jews because of their religion. Hamas does not wage a struggle against the Jews because they are Jewish, but wages a struggle against the Zionists who occupy Palestine. Yet, it is the Zionists who constantly identify Judaism and the Jews with their own colonial project, an illegal entity. Yep. That, I mean, you can't argue that. I mean, you can't argue with that if you're looking at this from a humanistic perspective. I mean, even like, let alone like Marxist historical and if Nelson Mandela wrote this preamble in the South African apartheid, most liberals in the modern sense would say, oh, well, this is, of course, they have to dismantle the South African government that was an apartheid state. Always on the wrong side of fucking history. And then they'll claim they were on the right side in retrospect. This whole project of affirming anti-Semitism with Zionism is actually, you know, I stated it in the introduction, but it's ironically only possible in states which have affirmed that they are not, that being anti-Semitic is not something that is publicly tolerated. So they're actually pushing the sort of limits of what is and is not anti-Semitism is that as that's pushed, it actually provides cover for actual anti-Semites to claim they're not anti-Semitic because they support the state of Israel, whereas they just want all of these damn Jews out of this country. You know, it's insane but you can imagine people on the far right saying, as we started this conversation, that they support the state of Israel, full stop. They should all go there. They don't belong in America. Yeah. You know, I can't think of a more anti-Semitic statement, honestly. And this is one thing I said to a few people is that I've seen people posting things, especially some of these like influencers saying like that they don't feel safe as Jews in America now and all these things. And I have only heard of a very few events recently, especially in the last week, of violence by Muslim or Arabs towards Jews. And my point to them was the biggest threat to Jews and Muslims in America is white nationalism. It's anti-Semitism, but not in the direction that you want to cast blame on it. Yeah, it's not principled anti-Zionism, that's for sure. The concept of the ethnocentric is really what's driving a lot of the anti-Semitism, either those people, those ethnocentrics that recognize Israel as a co-ethnocentric state and are willing to say that's where Jews belong, or those people that have an imagination of what the United States looks like in the Jews or Muslims and don't look like what they imagine the United States becoming. I want to make sure I really articulate this carefully. I do think that this project of the Zionist state of Israel is actually very effective, not just for you know, interpersonal discourse and confusing the subject, but also for organizing effort. We put on a rally here in Pittsburgh and it was it turned out to be a beautiful event and we had a lot of people come out and everything. But when the messaging at the moment should be squarely around Palestinian liberation, but you have to make sure that we don't get painted as anti-Semites, which we're going to anyway. And again, I want to make sure that we are intentional about creating a space where Jewish people feel absolutely safe to come and stand in solidarity with us. But again, it can create even some disjoint in articulating what should be very obvious messaging, even within this organizing settings as well. I can guarantee that is a desirable outcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's not that Jews feel uncomfortable at these Palestinian rallies or that these Palestinian rallies are occurring. 
it's specifically ethno-Zionists right. that feel uncomfortable, and they're hiding behind their identity as a Jew, not their identity as a Zionist. And then that's exactly what's in that handbook that I read from. It never says to identify, I feel hurt as a Zionist. It's, I feel hurt as a Jew. It's an intentional project to link the two together. And it's been incredibly effective. This was an exercise I distinctly remember when I was younger, at some point, probably like ninth grade. And it was, maybe it was multiple times, but it was the very distinct question in the discussion of, do we as Jews identify as an American Jew or as a Jewish American? And I feel like this was a very big deliberate question to how Jews in America identify themselves. And if they're identifying themselves kind of as Jewish first, then I feel like they're going to be take offense to these kind of things. And then maybe as an American first, maybe you kind of look beyond Jewish and Zionist as kind of your sole identifying features or your just your identity in general. And I always remember saying, I'm an American Jew. You need to go to one side of the room, depending upon which you feel, and then you have to talk to each other. And my side was always smaller. It was always these, the Jewish Americans. That's really interesting because that must have been like a curriculum question that they required across America because I had the exact same project. And I remember also identifying as an American Jew and being on the smaller end. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I said that I identified with that was my mother is a convert because it's a matrilineal religion. There are people that they're going to accuse me of not being a real Jew. And something about that always made me feel more critical of these questions about ethnicity and religion. So to me, if your question is about state and ethnicity and place, then I'm going to say I'm an American. If it's about my religion, then I'm going to say I'm Jewish. But then culture plays a different role in that. I was raised going to Christmas on my mother's side and then going to all of the Jewish events on my father's side. All of the culture, all of the religion, everything was just so mixed up in my understanding of the religion and upbringing that it really forced me to think twice about what it meant to consider yourself ethnically Jewish. It doesn't surprise me at all that this is like a universal thing. It feels very intentional. I don't know if it's like the rabbis at synagogue. This is like very much this self-identification type of thing. I remember feeling very awkward by that exercise. You went to Sunday school, right, Nick? Yeah, raised Catholic. I don't want to muddy the waters too much here, but you know, when I talk about like the Irish part of my heritage, because again, I'm just a American mutt, like so many of us in terms of like ethnicity or for whatever that is worth, so many generations removed as I am. You know, when I end up talking about the Irish side, because of the complex history there, you know, it's, wow, I'm Irish Catholic. Especially, like, when I'm talking to people, if I'm in Ireland, and you get into those kind of conversations, I guess you kind of signify where you might stand on some political issues with that, you know what I mean? Just, again, given the complex history. Not, again, you can't essentialize it, you can't make it categorical, but just broadly speaking, you know. Your experience sounds a little bit different, but in talking to my wife and being raised Catholic, those weren't the kind of questions that she ever had to think about or worry about. And she's from German stock mm-hmm. as well. There's, there was no question about which side of German politics you're on that was associated with religion. It was just, you're Catholic. Yeah. You're the right religion. The rest of the religions are wrong. And I'm, yeah. And that's it. I'm talking in like a v- very specific right. portion, I guess, of my ethnic background or whatever you want to call it. Right. That was never right. just in like a broad day to day American conversation. It was just, Catholic, you know what I mean? 
you know, to your point, I remember my second grade CCD, Sunday school catechism, whatever you want to call it, teacher talking about various different religions. And now she's like, oh, you know, they're all good. And it was more about like the Protestant divide versus rather than talking about um, Judaism or Islam. And she just said so categorically to like, again, we're like seven or eight, however the fuck old you are at in second grade. And she said, well, but you know what? We've got this figured out. We had it right. And I remember thinking like, well, that's kind of strong. Like, even then, you know, <laughs> like what? <laughs> I remember in uh, another episode where Mike was on, we were talking about Catholic school in relation to the movie Dogma. And it seems like the Catholic school is very focused around like what you can and can't do and, you know, how you're redeemed. I feel like religious school within Judaism is more about identity, which I think is to the point of this exercise that we both experience in different cities and different times so that you don't lose some practice of it so that it can be passed to your children so the religion doesn't die. And that's very much also probably why they want you to come to Israel, where you can practice this religion freely from oppression, but to keep you there and to keep the religion going. And that's why they need their project to survive. And that's why they need the most land possible as part of this modern Zionist project. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very modern rendition of Zionism, because in its beginning, it was really not actually that interested in the practices of religious Judaism. No. There wasn't really any conversation about whether or not buses are going to run on Shabbat. They ran on Shabbat. These things sort of developed over time as the practicing religious portion within Israel grew. None of these founding members of the state of Israel, I think, would have ever even considered themselves practicing or very religious Jews. I mean, Theodore Herzl himself wasn't even that interested in having Zion be in Israel. He was okay with it being in Argentina or Uganda. There just wasn't that much consideration to those actual Jewish practice questions. But that's definitely transformed since the rise of the Likud party and the reorganization of Israeli politics around neoliberalism and religious ethno-state rather than a religious cultural ethno-state. You know, the Likud party is rooted in this revisionist Zionism, this branch off of the settler colonial Zionism, I would say, right, of the Zionism that ultimately won out. This quote sums it up pretty nicely, just because I think we still have to center that both strands of Zionism that we're talking about, whether it be the more secular labor-centric or the revisionist Likud strain, were still predicated upon expansionism, maybe for different motives, but it was always expansion for one reason or the other at the expense of the Palestinian people. So this is a quote from Norma Sala amazing Palestinian historian where who I would recommend that you read we've referenced him time and time again on this on the series that we've done together but he says in contrast to the pragmatic and gradualist expansionism of labor zionism with its perception of political reality and what was possible under local regional and international conditions revisionist zionism has always been known for its maximalist political aims while labor Zionism concentrated on numerous objectives at the same time, the revisionists focused on one idea, the territorial integrity of Eretz Israel and its biblical boundaries. Yeah, I mean, I think that when the Likud party took power in the late 1970s, I don't know what year exactly, I believe it was the first time that there was any loss of control to like the left wing 
socialist groups and blocks there and it transformed the country to what we know today. And I think a lot of that 80s and 90s Israeli politics, which I'm not that well versed in, be interesting to, uh, to learn about some of that because my education on it was skewed if you've been following along with my indoctrination. I'm not sure if we'll ever, ever get there just because I think Levi covered about a thousand years of history in two episodes and I'm on episode three of my part and we really haven't left the 1948 to 57 decade yet. So well, that's, that's a tough, <laughs> I mean, that's a tough we'll era. get there eventually, but I feel like it's really important to do a good job with that little bit. Well, well I think learning how it, that formation in the 1940s, I think it doesn't matter what happened later if you don't understand how it was created, which I think I think I've told maybe both of you is that I've told people who just all of a sudden tuned into Israeli politics the last seven or eight days, think that this is like the start of this. Yeah. We like don't have any frame. And I've told them to listen to both your rebroadcast and also the one on Rev Left that they just rebroadcasted on some of the different sects of Zionism. If they don't want to read seven books, that's fine. You can listen to a couple of hours of podcasts and get a frame of reference because you look like idiots trying to tell me and other people that you know what you're talking about. Uh, I felt kind of like an elitist asshole a little bit when somebody came at me a little bit about something. And I was like, listen, dude, you're arguing with the wrong person if you want to talk about the history here. Because <laughs> I've spent a lot of hours reading books and white papers and just listening to Levi. So again, not to be like that, but it, it, it is maddening when this shit pops off and it's like leftists have been talking about this for years and years and years, right? And then when people just act like this conflict springs out of the ground again for no good fucking reason and their frame of reference in terms of explaining it begins and ends with, well, Hamas attacked. Mm. And that's yeah. so frustrating. Like, do you know that Gaza is a concentration camp? Do you know about the blockade, right? I mean, do you know about those years that you're talking about, Evan? I mean, do you know? But Hamas. Me? But, right, Hamas. Right, but Hamas. And it's just like, shut right. the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. There's a genocide going on right now. This again goes back to the to tie into propaganda machine that Israel has become, the PR behemoth, is that they have so successfully created this myth about their project and Zionism in Israel and linking of anti-Semitism with hating Israel and all of these things. We are seeing it play out in real time right now especially today of any day where narrative of this bombing of a hospital is very straightforward. And yet we have back and forth. We did it. We didn't do it. They did it. Someone else did it. Face lasers. Anything to obfuscate what they've done. And if they admitted to it, their narrative breaks down. And it already is breaking down for people who can look. Yeah. I mean, have you been watching for the past, however long this bombardment has been going on? Are you really surprised that they would hit a hospital after everything we've witnessed? All historical context, even of the past few days, goes out the window when you're looking at this. It's like, is, after what we've seen, is it really that hard? Do you really have to contort yourself and look like such a fucking idiot just to defend this? Yeah. When all the evidence is in front of your face. Like, stop yourself. They have Twitter ads, YouTube ads. Ads in children's apps. I mean, this is a concerted effort to create a worldwide narrative against the people who have no resources, no food, no fucking water, nothing. How do you go up against that? 
And on one hand, you know, I think we can talk about the program that was kind of the locus point of the conversation today and say, look, they've obviously been very successful. This is huge. But the fact that they have to make these rainbow colored ads that are targeted towards the parents of children, the, the kids can't read what's actually being said here. I mean, and they have to go through all of this propaganda and contort themselves shows that they're scared at some level, shows that they're scared. And that's why we need to keep getting out there, rising up and saying, hey, we are against this. I think we all feel a little bit helpless at some level, right? Like, Because we want to all do something. I know everybody listening to this podcast wants to do something. And the reality is, is that we all have to make small, quantitative, incremental change at this moment and not back down in the face of this monstrosity. In that article I read, Hasbara is sort of noted as this uniquely Israeli concept, but the furthest from unique. And there's this great headline in terms of encapsulating this concept from Fox News. It says, colleges taught my generation to hate America. Are we so surprised that they taught us to hate Israel too? So this propaganda is incredibly powerful at actually linking together the propaganda machines on the right in the United States. Not only are we scared of learning about black lives in our own history, but it's these same universities, these same schools, these same high schools are somehow teaching children to hate Israel as well. I mean, this propaganda machine is humming along at full speed. Our only hope is that it can break down, that people are going to wake up and realize, I didn't learn anything about Israel in the past 10 years in my college or high school. I didn't learn anything in my high school about this stuff. If anything, you you learn the opposite. You learn about how great Israel is. I think that's why it's so important. You were saying earlier, Nick, you know, you say like, oh, well, it's, it's the terminal online people who are just trying to shouting into the ether. I think in some cases, I think it's important. Organizing doesn't necessarily needs to happen online, but then in person. But I think in this case, it's important that people who are just trying to pretend this whole situation isn't happening to be inundated with this, where they actually might pay attention. They might actually see some of this. Because I see people who are, you know, friends with their wives. I don't think they could give two shits about any of this, what's happening in Gaza. They're not paying attention to it. But if they were to turn on the news, we know what narrative they get. Yeah. But I think it's important to talk to someone you know who might be interested in having a, a very basic conversation about this. I mean, normally I'd say talk to someone about socialism or communism, get them interested. But I think in this case, it's a much more clear human message. It's human being. Yeah. There are people out there that, again, I'll use the example, my mother. I mean, after years of talking to her about different things, like she came to me and was like, okay, so what is your perspective on what's going on here? Mm. That's the kind of conversation that you can have where you can sit down and explain. And again, this is my mother. You're going to have to do it with other people as well. But you can get people, I think, to a point where they trust you to Give them the story. It requires you to be educated, you know, and take some time. And that's work. It is work. I will maintain that I think that that conversation is important. Like we have to affect incremental quantitative change at this point, because if Gazans can withstand all this, you can have maybe a tougher conversation with one of your friends that is at least open hearing more about it and learning more. I think like Evan said, the conversation where you say, you know, let me tell you about socialism has this sort of coldness to it that people find kind of awkward, it's explicitly political, whereas these human questions really are something that speak to your morality, speak to your day-to-day life and how you consider the world. That is the essence of socialism itself. 
once you dig down below the base, it's about how you understand humanity. Do you see people as being of equal value around the globe because they have a beating heart as opposed to the amount of money in their pocket or their exploitation or their labor? So at the basis of it, this is actually a great entryway to get people to think broader about the shared humanity they have with the people in this conflict and the shared humanity they have with everybody in conflicts that are driven by similar ideologies and bases around the globe. If people that are willing to think twice about the way they think of Hamas and the way they think of Gaza and the way they think of Palestinians, I mean, they might think twice about Native Americans, poor people, themselves in their own relationship to the people that have power in this country. Anyone that's under oppression around the world. Yeah. I think that's just a really powerful entryway in general into getting people to think twice about larger questions. That's well said. I was only going to say is that that's kind of an entry point or a breaking in point, rising up against those who are oppressing you, having an understanding of who the oppressor and the oppressee is. For so many people, I think it's completely foreign and lost. You can look at our education where, oh, we had Thanksgiving dinner with the uh, Native Americans. We cheers our drink and we ate corn together and that was it. You know, it's interesting because just because we're talking about how to use this as like an entryway, I think, to additional conversations, you know, and Levi, I think I told you this story about like, my uh, grandfather just read a book that was like very sympathetic to Native American struggle, you know, and I've been thinking because I know he just sits there and watches fucking Fox News all day, unfortunately, you know, and I do like to call him just because I like to talk to my grandfather every few weeks, but I'm dreading this particular conversation. And I just like had the idea today. He was like astounded by this story. And I don't, how am I ever going to talk to him about this? And I'm thinking I'm going to use that same analogy. You would expect those Native Americans in that story you just read to fight back. This is what's going on in Palestine at a very basic level. They've been oppressed, and they're fighting back against the oppressor. You know, we can talk all we want, and this is another trite point. The history here is complex, but at a very fundamental level, this is not a complex question. And that's why we don't need all these caveats and qualifiers for why we're going out to say we stand with Gaza and we stand with the Palestinian struggle. Which side are you on? Do you believe in humanity or do you believe in capitalism? Yeah. One is at stake here. And I know which side I'm on. Amen. I mean, this was, I guess, kind of cathartic in some ways for me. Hopefully it was for you guys. That I think it was still a good conversation. And I think there's, you know, at least something to give people to consider about the project we're seeing play out in real time right now. And hopefully we can make at least one person just rethink that. And my mission would be accomplished in this conversation tonight if that could be the case. Evan, thanks for coming on and just being open with us, man, and sharing the story. I think it really is its profound and helps you understand what's, what's actually going on. I mean, I know this probably isn't the typical experience for most American Jews, but I think the birthright is a thing that a lot of people can understand, Sunday school, all of these things. I think hopefully it gives people a perspective. I think part of my wanting to talk about this, we were planning to do this for anyone listening before the last week events. Originally, my thinking was just Israel is pulls you in, and that's what they want to do. And I think you need to, hate to use a cliche, you need to resist the temptation to just go along with everything that they're saying and their kind of their ideals and their ideas and try and learn a bit more about the situation as a whole. You know, resist the ideas of the U.S. empire as it relates to this whole thing as well. We should have learned the lesson about this rhetoric around terrorists and self-defense not much more than 20 years ago. 
when George Bush comes out and says, hey, this is an easy one to figure out, you should probably be on the opposite side of him. Thanks again, man. Thanks, Levi, for you know your work in putting that intro together and the conversation. I'll add some links, find some things that you should support. The Palestinian Children's Relief Fund is a cause worth donating to. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep an eye out for rallies and protests that you can go out and you know raise your voice at in your local area. Uh, I do want to shout out that there is a rally for our Northeast friends coming up in D.C. on November the 4th, led by the Answer Coalition, the Palestinian Youth Movement, among many others. Keep an eye out for that, and if possible, to tell fucking Sleepy Joe to cut this shit. And I'd also add the, uh, the Jewish Voice for Peace, and they have chapters in, I think, 30 of the 50 states right now, probably growing. So they have a lot of good rallies and plus local events. I would encourage Jewish and non-Jewish friends to reach across the aisle. I hate that term, but I said it. I think I've been thinking about it like this. I've always had this thought. How did people not do anything when they saw these atrocities happening in real time? How did people that didn't do anything feel after the fact? If you can go to one rally, if you can help change one person's mind, I think you can look back at this moment and say, at least I fucking tried. All those people that don't understand how we got into the Iraq war. Real time right now. This is your chance to do a small part where you'll live to regret it. Either you stand against genocide or you don't. It's pretty simple. Definitely. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks again, boys. Um, And thanks for listening to the intervention. Go out and do the work. We love you. Free Palestine. See you later. Adios, paisanos. (laughs) 